Hello and welcome to the Tez My Best Teacher podcast with me, Dan Worth. Our guest today is comedian and writer Shappi Kosandi, who regularly hosts sellout tours across the UK, appears on numerous TV and radio panel shows, and is the author of two books, Nina Is Not Okay and A Beginner's Guide to Acting English. She chats to us about why her time in school was so important for her after her family arrived in the UK as refugees from Iran after the revolution, and the huge role teachers played in particular in helping her and her brother settle into their new life and learn the language. She also tells us how she started performing from a young age at primary school, even if she didn't always get the part she wanted, how she navigated the tricky path of secondary school and its social scene, and how writing a play helped boost her social stock, if only for a short while, And she tells us why achieving an A for her English A-level is something she considers one of her greatest achievements, and the huge thanks she owes to the teacher that made this possible. All that and lots more on the My Best Teacher podcast from Tez. Hi Shappi, welcome to the My Best Teacher podcast. Great to chat with you. Um, How are you doing today? I'm really well, thank you very much. Very very nice to be chatting. Good stuff. And you've got a cup of tea and... We're all, it's Friday, everything's looking good. Thank you for being patient with me while I made a cup of tea, after being late as well. Um, so that is much appreciated. That's all right, I think. A cup of tea in hand, I think our podcast is always better for that. I can't cope without tea. No, I, I physically can't get it down me enough. Do you ration yourself? Do you try and, because I often try and have no more than three a day, and that's quite a low amount. So do you have, how many are you having, sort of five or six? Or? I, I don't ration myself, and I get really excited when I go to bed because I think, oh, I can wake up in the morning and have tea. And then um, I, throughout the day, I'll suddenly go, oh, I can have tea because I'm a grown-up <laughs> and I can do what I like. I guess it's better than gin, you know, having mm. that feeling towards gin is worse. So no, I don't try and limit it. I just enjoy it. And, and what's your tea of choice, or is there many? Earl Grey. Oh, great. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, no, viewers can't see this, but I'm holding up my tea, which also is Earl Grey. So there we go. So we're not really starting on school here, but let's, let's crack on with, with school stuff. Um, so obviously, primary school, I mean, obviously, that's quite a story. And, and you've talked about that a lot on various, you know, in your, in your comedy and on, on chat shows and so forth. But can you give us a sort of abridged explanation of, of how your primary school life started in the UK? Yes. Yeah, so I went to a little school, although it's quite big now, called Montpelier Primary School in Ealing, West London, um, a state school. And I loved every second that I spent there. I cannot begin to tell you how much I loved it. Um, it was, so this was back in the 70s where we came from Iran and everything at home was Iranian, language, everything. Because I think like a lot of refugees, we thought we'd go home. So, mm. um, you know, my parents were always like, oh, no, 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 don't speak English at home because then when we go back to Iran and you go to school in Iran, you won't have Farsi. So I threw myself headlong into school because that was England to me. Mm. And I started to speak like this. I spoke as posh as I possibly could as a child Um because I'll be honest with you, back in the 70s, I'm now speaking as I did as a six-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> back in the 70s, attitudes towards foreigners um, weren't quite the same. Mm. Well, I mean, arguably, that, that that's for people to have their own discussions about. But people would be more demonstrably um, hostile. Sometimes, mm. not all, but there would be occasions where we'd be in Marks and Spencers or something and, and my mum would take her massive shopping trolley full to the brim through the nine items or fewer counter. 
and someone would go, oh, bloody foreigners. And then as a child, I would, it, I'd really, that would make me smart. And I would think that if I said to them, I'm so sorry, my mum didn't see the sign, then that would put them in their place a bit because I sounded really um, not foreign. <laughs> Just, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think one of my jokes was uh, I, I had to explain to my to people, I'm so sorry about that. But to be fair, there wasn't a no donkey sign in the cinema, which is funnier than the nine items or less or, um, or fewer. It's the times, nine items or fewer. Yeah. <laughs> I remember at school, um, Christmas was was at school. Like mm. Some people feel sorry for me when I say that we didn't celebrate Christmas at home. They, they think that's a really sad thing. But we got so excited for us, like glitter and making the the um, the, the paper chains mm. and Santa coming to school. That was Christmas, and we didn't we didn't feel like we missed out by not having Santa come to our home because he'd already seen us in school, and you know, get all the all that sort of and all the school plays. You know, we did a play about Horatio Nelson. I remember. Mm. And I was a narrator and they always used to make me a narrator because um, Chaparax had got a loud, clear voice. I had a loud, clear voice. And <laughs> I was a bit about that because I wanted a part. Um, and I think I was absolutely devastated at school because um, I never got to be Mary in the school play. And one year the teacher said, Mary is from the Middle East so we have chosen someone who is also from the Middle East to play Mary. And they chose this girl, Natasha. I thought it was me. Mm. And Natasha was only half Iranian. So she was Mary. And I was a shepherd. Once again, I was a shepherd. That must have stung. It really stung. You know, I carried that um, agony through all my life. And then uh, three years ago, three or four years ago, um, my daughter was cast as Mary ah. and it was quite a moment for me let me tell you I felt that all the pain of the past melted away <laughs> <laughs> yes that is a nice sort of closing the loop on that and the catharsis of ah oh, it's finally been achieved within the family yes absolutely we had a teacher at school, our head teacher headmaster as they were known in those days called uh, Vincent McQueen. And he were, uh, had been an uh, RAF pilot in the war. And also he was something quite huge in the local amateur dramatics society. And Mr. McQueen, I remember, was the reason why our shows at school were, were such extravaganzas. Mm. Like he would often actually write the, the shows himself. He wrote a brilliant... Um, school play about us all getting on the tube and going up to London and how all the brilliant lights of Piccadilly Circus were wonderful but we got to come home to Ealing and Ealing's the best it's the queen of the suburbs and I think he still instilled a very strong patriotism in me about the borough of mm. Ealing where I now have moved back to like a little homing pigeon <laughs> I came home. so those are my memories of primary school the narrator roles there and his sort of theatrical nature in these great plays. I mean, do you think 
were you already kind of drawn towards performing or did you think that that sort of gave you that taste for it? Because the narrator, you know, joking aside about the not getting the Mary part, I mean, the narrator is quite a powerful role. Is it you sort of dictate that you run the stage? I mean, do you think that had some sort of set something off in your mind about performing? You know, um, I wish I had someone had talked to me about that in those words then, because I just saw the narrator as not having a part in the actual play. But of course, now, if I was in a play, I would so want to be the narrator. Mm. That is the most powerful position to be in. You are literally running the show. But I remember we'd made um, Nelson's column and then all the cast at the end were walking around Nelson's column singing hippo-paratio, hippo-paray, that's what the people are say. I remember everything. And I said, Miss, is it all right if the narrators walk around the column it's at the end as well because um, it's a bit boring just narrating. <gasps> and she had a go at me in front of the whole class and said, Chaparac thinks narrating's boring. Maybe we should give that part to someone else. I started crying. I begged them not to. Another teacher came in and placated the teacher and, and I got my narrator. But what she should have done, what I would do, is take that child aside and go, well, clearly you have a massive ego and a lust for the limelight. So the narrator is the best possible part we could have given you because you're running the show. But mm. they didn't. So I cried and cried and cried. I remember when I couldn't speak English, I got my yes and no muddled up. And the teacher at the end of the class would say, ask someone if they'd like to sing a nursery rhyme for everyone. And she asked me if I'd like to sing a nursery rhyme. And I went, no, meaning yes. And she went, oh, all right, never mind then. And she asked someone else to. And I didn't have enough English to say, no, 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 I meant yes. So I started crying. And then so she pulled me onto her lap and I sat on her lap and watched some other girl sing Bar Bar Black Sheep, seething with jealousy, but mm. also quite enjoying getting to sit on the teacher's lap. So a lot, not having, um, not having the English language is something I remember very clearly. It was a source of huge frustration for me. I don't know if this comes across, but I am a talker and not, not being understood was um, really tough. I, I can imagine. And, and at the school, though, I mean, over time, presumably because you sort of veering there between the language being a problem and then also you, the, you were the narrator. So clearly you then did have, the, you know, not more than more than adequate language skills. I mean, the school must have played a big part in that, in that development. And did you pick up that kind of posh accent at school from the teachers or was that more just the general society? It was the teachers because um, it was Ealing was a fancy area. Mm. It was a very affluent part of Ealing, although you know we weren't affluent. We lived in a rented um, a rented flat with um, broken windows, and I don't think I've ever been happier as a child as when we lived in that flat. Mm. But anyway, I digress because um, it had this shared magical garden that I'm sure. The fairies were real in it. But anyway, mm. and I had a bomb shelter. It was incredible. Mm. Anyway, so um, the tea, what, what happened to me and my brother with our English was uh, a wonderful woman called Mrs. Gad, who was one of the teachers there. She would sit with us at lunch times and work on our English with us. And um, years and years later, about sort of, Five, six years ago, I got in touch with Mrs. Gad and they still live in Ealing and I took my children around to their house and we had tea and sandwiches and, and I, you know, I sort of said to her, like, you know, you have no idea of what you meant to our family 
but you meant a huge amount, you know, when you are, my parents, it wasn't just that they were immigrants, they were refugees, they had a lot on their plate, or their family was in Iran, or their money had been in Iran and it was taken after mm. the revolution. So all of those massive, gigantic problems plunged into the Iran-Iraq war. My brother, my my mum's brother was 19 and got shot dead. Her other brother was captured by the Iraqis. Um, he was at the front and he we didn't know where he was for six months. And he's a nurse now, in case anyone's worried about him. He's fine. But he, um, all of this stuff was going on. And so they, my parents um, needed support and they got phenomenal support from um, the teachers at school. And Mr. McQueen in particular was really sensitive to um, what we were going through. And um, for all the politically incorrect incidences at school, like for example, there's one girl from, uh, she came from Lebanon and she she was running an errand for a teacher and she walked into our classroom without knocking. And the teacher said, well, I suppose where you're from, you just blow the doors down, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Crikey. And, yeah, different times. Yeah. Different times. And and I remember going on a, a school trip to the Isle of Wight and I got food we were served in the hotel it was like really soggy chips and I just couldn't eat it and I remember one teacher very very sympathetically and gently said to me um I suppose you're used to more spicy food where you're from and put a bit of pepper on it <laughs> and it was adorable but also as a child I didn't even know what spicy was because Iranian food isn't um hot spicy it's herby mm. Uh, it's more like Turkish food or Greek food. <laughs> that's that's a real good insight into the British culinary mindset back there, which was like pepper was this exotic, you know, kind of sp spicy thing, wasn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was the 80s. Sorry, so you were saying Mrs. Gad. So yeah, she she does sound incredible. And the fact you went back and met up with her, that's a lovely thing to do. I mean, did you sort of, what, what triggered that? Was it just a, a clarity of I should make contact and tell her what she did for me. No, she read my book, A Beginner's mm. Guide to Acting English, when I talked about her. And then I, I did a, a show at Ealing Town Hall. And uh, this gentleman came up to me and said, hello, um, my wife's here to see you. You may remember her. She went, uh, she was your teacher at school. Her name is Mrs. Gad. And I just threw myself at her, mm. poor Mrs. Gad, and she looked exactly the same. I recognised her instantly, and I just cuddled her and cried a bit and um, just said, you know, I, in all the, the confusion and the anxiety of, of what we were going through then, people like you were just... Um, like angels to us you know she was and also to get that one-to-one -one attention as a kid mm. and to 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 be able to at playtime be quiet you know not be overwhelmed in a playground in a new country with and so the effect it had on me was when I went to high school then I volunteered um, because there was an influx of um children so I was in the fifth form whatever that is these days I was like second year GCSEs mm. 
And in the younger class, there was an influx of refugees and I went to volunteer to sit with them and practice English at lunch times. And this one little girl, she was from Iraq. Now, I don't speak Arabic, but, you know, I understood where she was. So we Mm. would just sit, we we would just play and I would talk to her. And then the summer holidays came round. And when I saw her again in the school corridor, it was the best thing. Because kids pick up language so quickly, that same quiet, shy, slightly terrified little girl was like going, oh, my days, did you see what he did? Oh, my God, you're going to come. you come down to the sports field. You're in netball. You're doing netball. And she was absolutely one of the, one yeah. of the scrum. And uh, I remember... Um, being much, much the same. Um, I learned English pretty quick, but I do remember not being able to speak it. I remember being so happy when I read my first book, Andy Pandy and the Snowman, by myself. Mm. That um, good. Yeah, lovely stuff. And also, so it sounds like Mrs. Gad obviously sounds like one of your best teachers. And also, um, Vincent McQueen, the Headmaster, which is an amazing name, isn't it? I mean, that is like he was in the RAF. I mean, that that suits perfectly. A bomber command type chap. I can I can always feel like I can pitch him. But again, it sounds like he was quite a sort of a, a strong influence as well at your your time at school. Yeah, he was lovely. He was um, he was he was the man I remember. Had a, we had a special assembly, and he gave us all a lecture because he was cross with us, because he'd, he'd heard the word spastic being used as a term of abuse. Mm. And I remember he gave us, I, I must have been about eight, he talked to us about the use of that word and why you must never use that word as a term of abuse. And I remember a lot of our assemblies were like that, where he would see or hear something that we'd been doing and we, he'd tell us why those things might be hurtful. And, uh, and I remember one boy got um, called in because he'd made racist and sexist remarks. And I didn't know what those words even meant back then. But Mr. McQueen was really good at talking about stuff like that back then, which um, mm. it's sort of, sort of commonplace now. Um, but there was nothing I don't think really set in the curriculum then to address these things and I know there weren't because you know you heard you heard um really um you know spicy attitudes from some of the teachers but Mm. Mr McQueen I remember um I remember that assembly really really well and he used to read us bible stories and you know moral tales and I, I grew up in a house with no religion um yeah, I would say atheist, but not not that that not that my parents sort of you know preached atheism to us, but there was no God to speak of, and God didn't even exist when someone died. You know, there was never explanation of he's gone to heaven mm. uh, when my uncle died, and so I found all the religious stuff at school really really fascinating, and I loved the hymns. You know, we. Uh, Wednesday morning hymn practice was like the highlight of my <laughs> week. <laughs> it was brilliant. Yeah. We plowed the field and scattered the good seed of the land. Um, yeah, so it was just, I just found all of it at primary school, pretty much all of it to be an utter nest of feathers for me mm. compared to everything that was, you know, 
everything else that was going on, it just felt really lovely. And there was this plasticine, whenever it was someone's birthday, that now with my kids, if there's someone's birthday at school, they come home with a haul of chocolate that's been handed out by the birthday kid. But we weren't allowed, oh, we were, I think we were. I think we had Fox's Glacier Mint someone brought in once. But there was a plastic cake in the art cupboard. And whenever it was someone's birthday, the plastic cake was brought out. There was a candle lit and they blew out their candle. We sang happy birthday and then the plastic cake was put back in the cupboard. And it was so exciting. Yeah, I quite like that as an idea. I think there's something sort of nice ritualistic. It's the same for everyone about that. You know, there's not no one up, person, you know, child chip. Yeah. Can you imagine giving kids now plastic? <laughs> Plasticine cake to be to be out. So that was my well. It does. It does sound lovely and obviously very important and impactful. Say for for yourself and your brother to 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 have that environment. And you know, imagine how different it might have been had you not gone to such a sort of open and and sort of embracing, welcoming school at that time. Because as you, it's clear to you that it was it was such an important part of your childhood. It wasn't just school. It was it was. You know, part of being a young person when you because home life was so different because of the, the situation your parents were in yeah I mean home life was fun too endless parties but it was it was like living in two different worlds two completely different worlds and my parents um were and are still extraordinarily sociable people so they would come to school events and then the next night half the parents that they met would be at our house for dinner. Mm. And then uh, I remember once a teacher said to me, oh, I've, I've heard your mum's an incredible cook because, of course, they come to our house and have Persian food. Um, so in the social side of it, my parents were really, uh, they immersed themselves, but they had no clue what was going on academically. I, I'm severely dyslexic. And I have attention deficit disorder. And at school, when when they were called in to talk about how I was writing backwards, I remember the meeting. They all decided that it's because I'm learning Farsi and English at the same time. Mm. And I got muddled up because um, Farsi is written from, I don't know, my left and right, but the opposite way to mm. English is And, oh, that's why problem solved. Like, as if being bilingual was ever a barrier to anyone. Oh, yes, her language is suffering because she's bilingual. No, I'm dyslexic. Help me. And I couldn't keep up with schoolwork. And it was just all of that. Oh, she's a space cadet. She's a daydreamer. She's very pleasant. She's very chatty. uh, But, you know, she can't add up and she writes upside down. So... That part of it I feel quite sad about. I feel very sad about the academic side of my life because I think that if 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 um, my uh, ADD, because this this curtain would come down in, in, in my mind when I had to concentrate on anything for longer than like two, three seconds. And, uh, and I knew even as a kid, I knew there was something wrong, but how can you express that to anyone? All you grow up thinking is I'm really lazy and everyone's really clever and I'm really stupid. Um, and then when I left primary school, that really impacted massively on me. Because at least at primary school, everyone knew me, everyone was nice to me. And it didn't matter what I looked like. That was really crucial. There was no school uniform at my primary school. And so people were very much themselves and accepted. 
And then you went to high school and it was a uniform, but then all the cool kids sort of somehow adapted their uniform. They rolled it up and they rolled Mm. down their socks. And I remember I had shoes with holes in them and I used to put cardboard um, because it's not even like I asked my mum for new shoes and she said, no, we can't afford them. You didn't even ask. I wouldn't bother my mum with new shoes. I knew the score. And it's, I look back and it's really interesting at a big state comprehensive where so many children were um, on uh, housing benefit and free school meals. It was such a horrid decade for shaming people for poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I was entitled to free school meals, but I didn't take them. I used to make myself um, salad sandwiches in the morning and I used to get a bottle of like tap water, but I put food coloring in and pretend it's squash because I didn't want to say to anyone, mm. uh, you know, that I I had school free school dinners because uh, I yeah there was there was um, a stigma attached to it. Eighties, mm. eh? Yeah. Well, it does sound very different. Your the way you you've touched on secondary school to primary school, and so you know. It, don't want to sort of go into it too much if, if it's not a sort of area that, that has all in present memories but I mean within that time there were there good things or was there a teacher you remember who who was good or you made made secondary sort of wrecks in any way sort of enjoyable compared to the how you describe primary yes there were some lovely teachers um there was a woman called Mrs Mackenzie who was our sociology teacher and looking back she must have been very young because she must she was quite punky mm. And sociology blew my mind as well because it really appealed to my um, curiosity about the world in the way the other subjects didn't really. Um, It was outward. It was looking outside of our school and and our world. It was, you know, we learned about the Portuguese chicken girl, a little girl that was raised in a chicken coop and, and about, you know, twins that were separated at birth and had stuff in common nature versus nurture we learned about class um we actually talked about class uh, um, for the first time and um and I also remember we talked about um, the ozone layer and that sociology and studying that in the way this teacher Mrs Mackenzie was she she talked to us very differently there was one very beautiful girl in the class and um, called Karen and she was yakking away in class. And Mrs. Mackenzie, she was Scottish, but excuse my Scottish accent. I remember she goes, Karen, stop your talking. You have to do it at school. You're not going to have that pretty face forever. Look what happened to mine. <laughs> and it just made us all laugh because I think she was a bit of a smoker. Mm. She was like, you know, um, and that really made me laugh. And I really loved how human she was in that moment. She was the first teacher we had that, that talk to us like we were individual people, not sort of a group of 30 that you had to sort of get, especially the, 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 we were streamed at school. So because of the problems I had with learning, I was in the lower streams mm. uh, with a lot of kids from um, backgrounds that were very challenging. And I'll be honest with you, like God knows what would happen to them over the weekends, but on a Monday they would come to school like baying for blood it, they were really difficult, mm. some of these kids. Um, and I was quite frightened a lot of the time. But she helped me to make sense of mm. why some kids are like that. 
Um, and that was really, really eye-opening for me. And it made me feel less, it made me not feel like a victim, if you see what I mean. It made, she made me understand that that kid, because I, I remember she saw this kid uh, be horrid to me, this boy. I nearly said his name then. You know the way you do it at school, their yeah. first name. He was, every day he would come into school and call me a horrible name and uh, push me over every single day. And I would just sort of, I wouldn't react. I would just sort of dust myself down and straighten myself out and sit that down at my, at my desk. He'd push me off my chair mm. every day. And then uh, she, uh, um, one day, I used to go in sometimes and it, I would do anything to avoid the playground at high school. So um, I would sometimes go in and talk to her in her room with a couple of other of my friends. And she said, you know, you have to understand what, where he comes from. And, you know, he, and she told us a little bit, I mean, she probably shouldn't have done, about issues that he had I was like, wow, okay, this is really interesting. So it sort of trained me to sort of understand that the way people reacted to you. What's that she said to me? I thought this was really significant. I always remembered this. It's like when people pick on you, a lot of the time it's people who are hurting and they think you can take it. Mm. So they've put you in a position that they see that's elevated to them and they think you can take it. And that's why they're taking it out on you, is that you have something that they don't have and feel sore that they don't have. Yeah. And, and that really made sense to me. And I've, I have always remembered that. And that, and, and that was very much in keeping with the way, you know, my, fat, my mum and dad's values were as well. So mm. I don't think it was an accident that I was drawn to her. Yeah, I think that we are drawn to people who have the similar sort of values and sensibilities that we've been um, raised with. I mean, that that obviously does sound quite tough, but but it's clear there was like a good teacher there in that regard, and then you clearly sort of like I said the way you describe sociology there and the things you talk about, and I can imagine that must have been quite particularly as well, like someone new to the country and learning the ways of the country and learning about class and how. You know, class is such a big part of British culture and sort of you don't know about it and then being explained about it, it must have been quite sort of, ah, right, I'm, things make a little bit more sense now. It was, um, it's, the class has always been quite interesting to me because for me, my, my class as a child was always um, judged on my accent, which I absolutely cultivate. I, I deliberately spoke mm. like you know, with received pronunciation as a child. And and then when I went to high school, a lot of the kids from my primary school took one look at the place and immediately dropped their middle-class accents and spoke with a more working-class accent to fit in. Mm. I didn't do that because I wanted to be an actor and go to RADA. I never did that. But, um, and also I learned at school really quickly that with a middle-class accent, you got away with more. Mm. So I found that because I couldn't, I I couldn't do the homework. Um, I had such such trouble with physics and science and maths and all that. So I would get out of doing homework by saying, "I'm so sorry, but we've had a really tricky time at home, sir." And you start to call our teachers "sir" back then, um, and I haven't been able to do my homework. I'm so sorry. Um, 
if you like, I'll come in at lunchtime and, and do it then. And they'd go, oh, it's okay, it's fine, chaparac, blah, blah. And then another kid that would be like, I ain't doing the homework, would get detention, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> I learned that really quick. So that was my, that was also learning about class. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> um, literally getting away with murder sometimes. Um, Not literally, I hope. No, no, well, I was thinking about the wider world, but there we are. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's another thing I've picked, off, picked up from the middle class. You just go, there we are, when you don't want to go um, into a discussion further. Yes. <laughs> another thing is I've learned from posh people is if you have a debate with them about something and uh, you're right and they don't have an argument, they go, well, you say that. And then they finish it there. And then you're left thinking, if you're like me, um, you know, state school educated and you don't know the, the rules, you go, well, yes, I did say that. And then afterwards you go, wait a minute, that wasn't a point. <laughs> <laughs> but you say that isn't an argument. Um, what I found at school, though, when you were talking about coming from a different country, it um, was really hard fitting in because... Um, my school on the outside looked like a real melting pot. But because I wasn't um, South Asian and I wasn't black and I wasn't white, I didn't fit in to any of the subcultures because mm. there was a real weird sort of hierarchy back in the 80s. Like the black girls were all cool and uh, then the white kids were um, separated in. I feel so awkward describing children in these terms, mm. but it's for want of a, this is. I'm talking with the language we spoke of, we had in the in the 80s. So, um, forgive defining people by their, you know, I, I never say white people normally, um, but but that's the um, would be like either the geeks or um, uh, or or um, nerds or or the roughnecks, as we said back then. Um, and then the Asian kids were sort of the ones that were not cool. And and then there was like a few people like me who were Middle Eastern and we didn't fit in anywhere. And it's really interesting when I look back, I think far more than now. I mean, my children have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about this kind of thing because mm. it doesn't really exist in their world. Um you know, it's just very different. I mean, I haven't been out. I don't know what schools are like outside of London, but I'm living in the same borough and my kids are going to similar schools. Anyway, the point is that I found it really hard because then you get at my school, you got the kids who were socially, it was hard. The kids who are Asian would often define themselves by their religion. That was their tribe. And they'd go, are you Muslim? Are you Hindu? Are you Sikh? What are you? And I'd be like, I haven't got a religion. And they were like, well, you don't fit in anywhere then. Mm. I was very conscious of that at school. I just didn't, I didn't fit in anywhere. So my best friend was a Jewish girl who she didn't fit in anywhere either. We sort of just clung on to each other. Mm. Yes, I can imagine that was quite, and again, another sort of strange element to navigate through through school on top of how difficult school is anyway for anyone at any age. You know, when you're 13, 14, 15, school is such a, like, a tribal place and the groups and 
you know, there's that famous scene in Mean Girls, isn't it, where she sort of introduces her to all the cliques in the in the cafeteria, and it's so well well sort of judged. Obviously, it's American, so it's another sort of layer up in that kind of. Iranians love that bit in the Mean Girls where she goes, "Oh, that, that's the Persians. Don't even go near them unless you got a Mercedes." And we're like, "Yes, thank you. We are the materialistic ones." <laughs> But one thing, one thing I did want to ask you because you you touched on the fact you said, oh, you want to go to Rada and you you know and then sort of be a performer, and, and obviously you, you have gone on to become you know a very successful stand up comedian, which is one of the most sort of performative roles you can have. So, did you find an outlet for that at school, or did you sort of keep your did you keep that under wraps because you didn't want to be have more targeting? I at high school I did everything to not draw attention to myself. Mm. Um, also, um, back then. 1984, I think it was. Um, it was the siege of the American embassy in Iran, which was the big news item. That I, if I drew attention to myself and I said I was Iranian, I would just get torn apart by kids. Oh, you're 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 going to take hostages. She takes hostages. You're a terrorist. That and, and that came from kids from across the you know, multicultural spectrum, mm. right? Um, I, I I had no refuge at school, so I didn't draw any attention to myself. I was like, I tried to live as a ghost at school. I never got into trouble. I got into one fight um, and that was it. And that was when I was defending um, someone, thank you very much, and this girl just attacked me. But what she didn't realise was for all my meekness and my quietness, um, I have grown up scrapping with a big brother. So mm. I had her. I, I would like the listeners to know that I had her. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I remember the teacher hauling us apart and saying, Shaparak, I didn't expect this of you. And I was like, self-defense, you know. But I was very strong. I was quite proud of myself. And then all the rough kids, that was my, my moment to be part of the cool gang. They were like, yeah, we're on your side. We're going to have a rematch after school. And um, I phoned my dad and he picked me up and I went, out of the school through a different exit so they wouldn't see me mm. and the next day I was like you're a chicken that was it socially I was dead so no is the answer I didn't draw attention to myself as I got older in school I got a bit more confident and I sat with a one um a girl called Carolyn Julian and she was the first person in history I sat with her in my history class she goes, oh, my God, Shaparak's a character. She's so funny. Shaparak's a character because um, I made her laugh and I really made Carolyn laugh. And the thing is, the way I made people laugh and I carried this on until university and then I kind of s- stopped was I, I turned out can be a very good mimic and I would mimic people. I'd mimic teachers. I'd mimic um other kids and they um I'd be mean I'd rip them apart but it was funny but then what I found out when I got older was people would laugh but they also wouldn't trust me because they it would just go a bit like well what's she gonna say about me but then I remember at school in the fifth year we had a school drama um we didn't do drama as a subject at school I think my life would have been so different at school if we had drama because I think that was where I felt confident. I knew mm. what I was doing. And a lot of the more bolshy kids, actually in drama, they were very shy. Um, but I wasn't. And then um, 
I wrote a little play for our, our, our house drama festival. So our school used to be a grammar school, so we still had houses, even though it was no longer grammar school. And I wrote an adult sort of little red riding hood and 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 I did it and then and then everyone was auditioning for parts and I was directing it and all these girls I was terrified of were clambering to be in my play. Mm-hmm. It was the most exciting thing I can tell you that I've ever experienced because no one ever gave me the time of day ever. I was invisible. I was a freak. I was a geek. I was a nerd. I just wasn't anyone anyone wanted to have anything to do with. And then Suddenly they, oh, and then I remember one girl, she got this part, her name was Tracy, and she she cornered me in a playground. And she goes, make my part bigger. Make my part bigger, yeah? Make it bigger, yeah? So I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of made her, I gave her a few more lines so she wouldn't kill <laughs> me. And we performed this play and the audience laughed. It made everyone laugh. And I, 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 was, I had su- such little self-confidence. I didn't even give myself a part in the play. I just wrote it mm. and directed it. And I stood in the wings and that feeling of people laughing because of words I've written. So by that age, I would have been, I think I was 14, 15. That was the best feeling, the best feeling I had. And I remember the one of our teachers said, uh, oh, you hide your light under a bushel or something, some nonsense like that. Mm. So that gave me enormous um, joy. You said you, that was like 14, 15. So I mean, in some ways it sounds like... Maybe a bit older, yeah. Right, I was going to say, because it sounds like obviously, even though school does something was tough and you wanted to be invisible and on the, you know, not draw attention to yourself, to, to do that, that clearly had something something you had to do it you know you felt compelled I've got to write this play I want to do it it is who I am sort of thing which is it is and you know I come from a very creative family and at home it was all singing dancing making things up performing come on Shappy make the guests laugh do do your impersonation of Thatcher the Ayatollah I used to do impersonations of Michael Foote I didn't even know what he did what I did but I did impressions of Michael Foote I'd hear little snippets in the news and I would like do little performances talking about plastic bullets in Northern Ireland. I had a little routine about that when I was a kid. God knows what I did, but I think adults just found it hilarious that a kid was talking about such serious things. So I did have that at home and my my family were always like, why aren't you as confident outside the house as you are in the house? And I had a real problem being who I was at home, outside. I still do, actually. I still... I still don't feel like um, in my industry, I don't feel confident. I don't feel like, hey, this is what I'm going to do, everyone. Follow me. I can't, I can't be like that. I think I'm still quite quietly scuttle around trying to do my thing. Mm. But that's okay. Yeah. You can only be who you are. As Absolutely. Yeah. And one thing I want to ask, you, you've referred, you obviously, you know, you, your stage name is Shappy, but you're, you're saying your name is Chaparak, which obviously is your real name. So, but I, I've seen you do a bit where you talk about how you changed your name at school to avoid that. But did, did it sort of take you a while to, to change it or did some people know your real name? And I, I sort of reinvented myself when I went to sixth form college. So I stayed at school for a bit because I only got two A-levels. Sorry, I only got four GCSEs and I wanted to do three A-levels. And then I ended up leaving school, getting another A-level, sorry, another GCSE in Farsi, which is me doing a GCSE Farsi as a foreign language. It's the same as you doing GCSE English as a foreign language. Mm. I got an A and it was funny for my GCSEs because I got two A's 
and um, three Bs in the end. And I, the, the rest were unclassified and E's. And no one thought if she was thick, she wouldn't be getting A's and B's and failing the rest. There's <laughs> something about, no, never yeah. So then I, I left sixth form. I took that year off and um, worked in a garage. And, and then I got part in this little play that toured Europe. That was random when I was mm. 17. Then when I went to A-level, sixth form college, I, I registered my name as Shappy. Because Chaparak, my name is Chaparak, it means butterfly. It's such a beautiful name in Farsi. But in English, it's Chaparak. And, and it was so, everyone laughed at it. I was called Crackerjack. When they brought up the Mary Rose from under the sea, I got called Shipwreck. I just got called names and everyone giggled at my name. Um, Shabaranks, you know. And so I became officially Shappy. Mm. And I registered my name as Shappy. When I did stand-up, I was Shappy. And now I'm at an age where I really miss Chaparek and because Shappy is just, sounds like a puppy dog's name. And none of my friends, people who are close to me, never call me Shappy. I'm Chaparek or Shap. Um, so Shappy's very much become my work name. Do you ever think about, do you think about going back to it? Because, you know, we've seen like Tandy Newton has, has sort of made that announcement. I mean, could you do something similar? The pronunciation is the same with her. She sort of is anglicised the word mm. for it by taking away the W or, or someone else took away the W. For me, it was literally like shoparak. And then people will go shoparak. They just add a ch. It's not a ch, it's a k. It's fine. You don't need to gargle, just shoparak. Or Sandy is a ch. Or Sandy. Or Sandy. But... Sometimes I think I should reclaim my name, but then other times I think, what? Oh. Mm, I suppose it's, it's it's the name that you're known by, and then people, you know, might not recognise it. Think, oh, who is that comedian? I've never heard of them. It's like, yeah, it's that person you've seen hundred times before, and it gets complicated. So yeah, I can see the. Maybe it's time for reinvention. Maybe post pandemic, you know, it's time to the new normal and all that. <laughs> It's just, it's just the pronunciation. You just have to give someone a, you know, lesson in um, gymnastics of the tongue. Mm. And it just doesn't have, when it, when I was naming my children, everyone was, um, oh, are you going to give them Persian names? And there's, there is a, a pot of Persian names that work in English too. So pretty much all the children of my um, friends who are half English, they're all called um, Lily, Dara, Mani, um, Cyrus, Darius, you know, th those sort of names that mm. also work, Layla also work in English. And I just thought, oh, do you know what? I'm just going to give them names they li I like. So I just called them Genevieve and Cassius. Yeah. So, you know, I just think with names, just I don't want, I don't feel the connection with my with their heritage has to be in their name. Um, mm. They're both called Cor Sandy, so it's easy yes. to say. But I didn't give them Persian names, which caused a bit of a, oh, but it's like, well, why? Because I could call beautiful Persian name Ashgan. I wanted to call my boy Ashgan, and someone went, oh, trash can, out, not having it. I'm yeah. not putting them through what I went through. And if the name doesn't have the same song in a different language, then give them a name that does. Mm. You know, yes. love the name 
Genevieve. It, it sounds beautiful in English. Cassius, you can't argue with that name. It's just lovely. So I gave them lovely names, but just not any that were in the Shana there. Mm. It's interesting, like I said, that I think about a name and thinking about how it might be adapted to school. It's kind of crazy that that's how we do it, but we do, don't we? Like, well, how, how might that be adapted by some, you know, clever bully? It's like, yeah, let's not, let's not give them the opportunity. So, yeah. You know what, there are some names. I can't make this guy called, um, you know, like, say, say a name like Bartholomew or um, Humphrey. And names like that, I think, ride it out because it, that, that's a, they're, they're brilliant, beautiful names and the kids will deal with it at school. Um, we had a boy called Rupert at our school. He had a terrible time, but as an adult, he loves his name, you know, mm. but it's pronounced Rupert. It's, 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 it's pronounced the way it's meant to be pronounced. But you're right because my, well, the same thing. I mean, I won't say I've got two middle names and they're both, they're both quite quirky. My parents were quite innovative with my middle names and I won't say both of them because it almost feels like it would be quite easy then for someone to steal them and use them as, as identity theft thing. But one of them is Augustus. And when the when in primary school, for some reason, everyone found out what my middle names were, it was mortifying. I was so embarrassed by that. And I was really like upset about it and just like, why can't I have normal middle names? And now that I'm older and you know, occasionally middle names come up in conversation, and I'm always really a bit like, well, actually, get this. These are mine. And like when I got married and the registrar read them out, it was kind of like, yeah, you know, quirky middle names. But it's funny how, yeah, when you're, when you're that sort of, this, this, as you get older and your sort of interpretation of names and how you're referred to and all that stuff, it's, it's such sort of, it's so important, isn't it? And well, I'm a big fan of Roman names, as you can guess from what I've named my own children. Mm. And, uh, and I, I remember at school we did this song, Emperor Augustus, by a new decree, ordered that all people taxed they should be. And I would have just sang that in your face. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Maybe that's how it came out. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, proving the point, but yeah, exactly that. It's just these funny things that come out, and and actually going back talking about school plays. I was in a play at school, and I, I had to. We I can't remember what the play was. It might, maybe it was written for like by a teacher. I don't remember, but it was a pirate themed play. It was in primary school, and I there was a song. One of the and I had to do a line which was on my own. Like during the song, we'd all be singing, and then it was like the one line. And I was a sort of comic pirate, and the line was, and that's the time when I want my mum. And I had to deliver it in a sort of slightly sort of sad, you know, like. And obviously, that was so embarrassing to say that as a primary school. Like, even though it was part of a play, saying that was so embarrassing. And I always used to try and get out of it during the rehearsals. And eventually, the teacher said, you can't keep pretending you have to go to the bathroom. You're going to have to do the line in rehearsal. And I did, obviously. But yeah, it was when you were talking about earlier about school plays, I thought, yeah, you know. You see, that, that line, that's someone I wanted my mum, that would be a line that the cockiest boy in school would get away with yeah. and get a laugh out of. But if you are not that sort of really bullshit no. kid um, and you're, you're trying to protect yourself the whole time, it's yeah. really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Really yeah. God, it's a terrible day. But I keep talking to my own children, checking in with them that they're having a good time at school. And... My son, who is now um, 13 and a half, one day just put his hand on my shoulders and he went, it's not the 80s anymore. We are fine. Um, they do so much mental health stuff at school. They do so much stuff about um, uh, enthusiastic consent in their personal things and, 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 uh, and they... This is something I just find so fascinating and so brilliant, and I so could have done with this when I was a, a kid. In, when they're teaching kids about relationships, what they do is actually just teach them about friendships. 
what makes a good friend? What is a good friend meant to make you feel like? Um, if a friend says something that's upset you or ignores you or doesn't want to play with you, how do you deal with that? And, and actually the direction they take them is actually you deal with it by yourself. You don't expect that friend to make you feel better. So it's like self-reliance. Mm. And that then goes to, to try and change the psychology of if you're rejected by someone sexually or romantically, then that person has to answer for some, to something mm. to you. It's so interesting and so fascinating and not at all how I was steered as a child. I had the most, I was talking to my son and telling him what horribly toxic friendships I had at school because I would make friends with people because they were funny. And I said, it took me a long time to realize that just because someone's funny and outgoing, it doesn't make them a good friend. And he said, well, when did you realize it? I said, when I was 36. <laughs> And I just stopped making friends with certain comedians because I thought, you're actually horrible. Why am I hanging out with you? <laughs> yes, no, you're absolutely right. It's, it's schools do so much more on that. We write that about that a lot on TEDS, you know, the, the, the PH, you know, PHSA, PSHG curriculum is coming in and, and, and well-being and mindfulness and all these kind of good stuff, which actually you think makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because what, 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 that's the time, time to learn about it is when your brain is forming and you can actually teach people lifelong lessons about things like just like maths or English. It's like, you know, let's talk about being a person. The, the mindful thing is so interesting. What, when I, um, when, one thing I really remember of, of my childhood is when family came over from Iran and to visit us, and my mum is from a huge family, lots and lots of uncles and aunts. And then my grandma came to live with us. And sitting and talking is the activity what are you doing today? Oh, I'm going to go and sit and talk with your neighbour upstairs. I'm going to sit and talk with, and whatever age, you didn't have to be an old person to pass the time by talking to someone. And another thing that was really common in, in our family was um, massages. It's like, oh, will you come and rub my back? Rubbing backs was a really uh, integral part of, of our family. And now it's like, you know, treat yourself to a massage um, sit and actually mm. turn phones off and have long conversations. Um, it's very therapeutic. And it's not until this generation started to really talk about it that I took it on board with my own work. Like, for example, this week I've had, I've had a really tricky week. I'm mourning a friend. And it was only um, yesterday that I went, oh, my God, I'm allowed to cancel things that are in my diary to give mm. myself some time. I'm allowed to cancel I'm allowed to do that. And I did, apart from this interview, because I was looking forward to it. <laughs> yes, well, thank you for that, yes. No, no, it's okay. And, and I, I thought, because I thought this isn't about comedy. I don't have to be funny on this. And, and um, it's, a, it's a proper chat, which I really enjoy. Um, but yeah, it's taken me till the age of 47 to properly understand about self-care. Mm. And just when, when we say to people, look after yourself, like actually look after yourself. Mm is you're of no use to anyone. And yeah. nowadays, all the young people, you know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, talk about your true authentic self. Be your true authentic self. And I, um, I have to admit, I, I have laughed a lot, a, a lot of the new stuff, because I'm of that generation that just laughs at things, doesn't, isn't sincere. Yes. We're having, either we're having a laugh or we're not in the game, whatever. <laughs> it just made me think that my true authentic self is what I've 
worked so hard to hide. It's the last thing I want to do. If I'm my true authentic self, I clear rooms. Yeah. No, that's that is a good way of putting it, is it? You're so right, yeah. And it's not about treats. I don't think good things should be treats. No, They're, no. You I just... want to be treated. So I went, I, you know, treated myself to a massage yesterday after cancelling like a yeah. couple of Zoom meetings. And it was it was really necessary for me to be able to, you know, f- lean into this is nothing I've learned. Yeah, yeah. Lean into your emotions. I thought you had to like hide under the bed from your emotions, but you lean into them the the young people have taught me. Yes. Well, yes, your, your son, your son sounds like he's very sort of, it's okay. That was very sort of, you know, wise beyond his years, it sounded like. Yeah, he is very wise. And and it's interesting because I've had to, like my son is an introvert. You know, he doesn't like parties. He doesn't like crowds. He has to spend some time processing things if he's in a crowd or a party. Mm. He's got a small group of friends that he adores and if they're not around, he is happy on his own. I, whereas I'm like, oh, do you want to see if, like, um, you know, a Jack from Over the Road is free? Do you want to go and see if so and kids are free? No, I'm fine. I am not you. I don't need a constant buzz of people about me <laughs> to validate me. He's actually said those words to yeah. me, obviously to make me laugh, which it did. But even the fact that he knows the word validate. I didn't know I was validating myself. I didn't know. All the behaviours that we have that causes anxiety, um, and kids know it. Like if I if I am remotely rude about someone, it's the most gentle joke, which I don't normally do, um, about something someone has said or done or worn. <laughs> My seven year old daughter is looks at me with such disappointment. Why would you say that about them, mummy? Oh, I'm just joking. Who laughed? She goes, who laughed? <laughs> <laughs> okay, no one laughed. Mummy's, mummy's horrible. I will never, ever take the mickey out of anyone ever again. <laughs> They've got the stage. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, they're nice because they treat themselves nicely, you know. Mm. And that's, yeah. um, it's horrible people. Who, people who treat themselves horribly, who are horrible. That's what I have learned from being a mother. Mm. <laughs> So there we are. I um, I don't stop talking. I have to um, be reined in. Well, it's good for a for a for a podcast, and that's that's what we want. We want talkers, not 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 one word answers. So that's great. And uh, you know, thank you, thank you for everything because that was such an interesting conversation on on school and and you know your upbringing and, and everything. And some really sort of powerful insights there of the on the power of teachers, the power of school, and the difficulties as well. But but also you know some of the ways that maybe they sort of not helped, but, you know, opened up something or gave you sort of way to channel that. Can I just end with one thing mm. that I really want to say? So um, there was a teacher at my sixth form college called Vicky Kingston. And so, like, you have to bear in mind, like, everything I've said, you know, four GCSEs, um, ADHD, dyslexia, all the tricky things that make you feel frustrated, make you feel stupid. And um, she clocked that I wrote poetry for fun and that fascinated her she was my English teacher it fascinated her that I wrote poetry for fun and so she actually set up a poetry club in lunch times once a week at my sixth form college that I went along to and she bought me a notebook she goes fill it up 
And I loved English. I always loved English. And then uh, in my A-levels, I was queuing to get our A-level results. And there was a girl in front of me and her French teacher came up to her and said, you've got an A for French. And she leapt up in the air, so happy. And I just looked at this girl and I just thought, how one, I'd never got an A in my life. I thought, how wonderful to get an A. Your mum must be so proud. Imagine getting an A. And I looked on the thing. I got theatre studies, C. Communication studies, C. English, A. And I thought, well, that can't be right. So I got my finger again by my, it's my name, English, A. And I got an A for my English A level. And that changed my life. Mm. It really did. I'm getting, I'm getting a bit emotional mm. talking about it. Because getting an A for my English A level after everything that I have thought of myself and, uh, as, as a student and as someone who can achieve things just was not relevant anymore because I got an A. And it was hugely Vicky Kingston picking me out of a mm. crowd and going, what are you doing? And she picked up because I was writing it and, and she saw that I was writing a poem and she put it back down and she spoke to me after class and she saw talent in me, mm. you know. And then I got my A and I, to this day, it's my greatest achievement. It's the thing that I feel launched me into the world as someone that believed in themselves a bit. Yeah. It still took me years to, and I still struggle, but it really ignited a self-belief in me that didn't exist really. Well, that's so powerful, isn't it? Yeah, that's an amazing story. And, and you did sound a bit emotional and it's easy to see why, because that is an incredible thing. And, and I suspect any teacher listening, again, it just shows the power of what they do is that that moment, that one spotting that talent, nurturing it, you know, believing in a student. And yeah, like you say, for you, it was, oh, that's not, that can't be me. It's like, yeah, it can be. You know, you can get that A. And that just sounds like, well, it's the greatest achievement you still think of that even everything else you've gone on to do. I mean, that's an amazing thing to say and shows. I've mentioned Vicky Kingston so many times in the hope that she will one day hear because I've looked her up, I can't find her. Mm. And I remember she had ME, so she, you know, she, she was quite poorly. Um, but she was um, Vicky Kingston, Richmond upon Thames College, um, was a huge uh, person in my life because she saw me um, for who who I am. Mm. But you've never you've never reconnected with her. You're saying never. No, I have tried. Oh well, yeah, we'll try and track her down because it sounds like that would be a just like with the Mrs. Gad meeting. It sounds like it would be quite quite important and quite powerful. And you know what? She was such a lo lovely person. She probably won't remember. She probably did that for so many kids because mm. that was the way she was. Her method was to treat people like they're individuals. So many good teachers you've had, sounds like to me, to your during your school years, or so many memorable and important ones, which is great. So again, thank you so much for talking to us for so long. Um, really, really enjoyable stuff. Really interesting. Thank you. Take care. Have a lovely day. Thank you Bye too. Now.